Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce cost and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. A note on subject matter. Due to the topic and tone, this episode is best suited to our more mature strangers. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. When you think of vampires, your mind may go to Twilight, or Anne Rice, or Dracula, or even the host of this podcast, Don't worry, no offense taken. But there are other, older, and stranger tales. You've no doubt heard stories of the ghouls and creatures of Europe, but there have also been encounters with the undead here in America. A few years ago, we told you about the Vampire of Mineral Point, a rather fascinating tale out of Wisconsin if we do say so ourselves. But today, we're heading further back in time, into the late 19th century, and to one of our favorite haunts, New England. When we speak of vampires and New England, we should perhaps discuss them in the same way that we do witches, in the context of cultural fear. We've dipped our toes into the stream of mass hysteria and local panics before, and we're back in those waters again. But things are perhaps a little different this time around, because the, uh, stakes are a lot higher. Because back then, the people of New England were dying in droves. And they had been for a long time. Today we're focused on what's known as the Vampire Panics of New England and on Rhode Island's last alleged vampire, Mercy Brown. You might be familiar. How does anywhere, never mind New England, find themselves in the midst of a vampire panic? And what is a vampire panic anyway? Believe it or not, there were several such so-called panics over the 18th and 19th centuries in the region, and they all came down to one thing. Fear. First, you need to keep in mind, in Rhode Island in the last decades of the 19th century, people died. A lot. This was not an anomaly. They died of diseases, of childbirth, of accidents, and of infections and so many other things that we'd now survive. 
But one of the most pervasive killers was what many then referred to as the White Plague. According to Johns Hopkins, a disease more properly known as tuberculosis. It was called the White Plague because of its epidemic spread and the ashen effect the disease often had on one's complexion. You're probably familiar with its well-known nickname, the consumption, the disease that consumes from within. Not so far from vampirism, really, if you think of it as an old movie trope. Something stealing away your life force, bit by bit. When one person grows weak, and then another, and then another, maybe the idea of supernatural forces feeding on your neighbors, your family, isn't so hard to believe. To believe in a creature close to our modern conception of the vampire. What's odd here is how the townsfolk of historic New England settled on their culprits. Not some strangers come to cause harm, but those who had already died of the same affliction. To understand why some people were willing to believe in vampires, you have to remember, illness and superstition have long gone hand in hand, and tuberculosis is certainly no exception. A monster and a mysterious illness aren't so far apart. Though the cause for the disease, Mycobacterium tuberculosis bacteria, wasn't discovered until 1882, the CDC explains that we have well over a thousand years of medical study of the illness that predated that discovery. Certainly, people could spot TB and the various symptoms it could cause from swelling in the lymph nodes to bloody sputum to fevers and gastric effects. The ancient Greek Hippocrates called TB physis, and per the CDC, many other cultures successfully classified the hallmarks of the illness. You see, the issue was not so much in identifying it, but in understanding how it spread and what might cure it. In the case of what came to be known as tuberculosis, some treatments seem logical by today's standards. For instance, the CDC describes centuries of what the Italians called lana letto latte, that is, warmth, rest, and good food. And there were other alleged cures, from hemlock to even the touch of a royal hand. And by that, we mean a monarch. Even when, in 1882, as the Journal of Antibiotics explains, the bacterial cause of the disease was finally discovered, it was cold comfort. Because, of course, there was still no cure. Some people did survive TB, but many did not. And when it caught hold of a family, a village, a region, it could seem like something almost supernatural. A silent killer had arrived that could breed panic and superstition. We have to imagine that it seemed that way in Rhode Island, where tuberculosis raged. But we'll let a Yankee Magazine article republished on NewEngland.com's website set the scene for us in a cinematic fashion. Here's what they wrote. Quote, South County, whose isolated villages resembled the lonely hamlets of Transylvania, was a hotbed of vampire rumors between 1870 and 1900. When Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula in 1897, died, 
Newspaper accounts of Vampire Mercy Brown were found in his files. Pretty spooky, right? Personally, we now consider Rhode Island absolutely atmospheric. According to the Providence Journal, Mercy Brown's death is more famous than her life. She was one of six members of the Brown family of Exeter to eventually die of consumption. According to the journal, by 1891, it had killed her mother and her sister. Mercy herself only lived to be 19 years old and passed away on January 17, 1892. She was one of many consumptive deaths in New England between 1870 and 1892, but she would be the last, as far as we know, linked with a real fear of vampirism. The Meriden Daily Journal goes on to explain that the Brown family's losses had spanned eight years. First was Mrs. Brown's death, then the eldest child, a daughter, and then a gap, quote, leaving the other members of the family in apparently good health. But it didn't last. The eldest son of the family, Edwin, became sick and, per the journal, he traveled to Colorado, quote, with the hope of recruiting his health. While he was gone, his 19-year-old sister, Mercy, grew ill, and she died before he returned. Although the settlers of New England were religious people, they still carried folk beliefs and practices. Some of that knowledge revolved around herbs and practical things. But, as an article published in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology explains, others told of monsters. And those tales weren't unique to Rhode Island. The pre-Dracula European vampire was a creature described across various cultures. Quote, European peasants believed that the appearance of the vampire in the grave, that is, bloated chest, long fingernails, and blood draining from the mouth, meant that the vampire was draining life from the living. End quote. Now, strangers, the very fact that European peasants were exploring this on the regular should be a hint that vampire panics were not unique to America. But back to the alleged undead. As the author points out, those physical changes, they were a result of something inevitable, decomposition. The belief that one could discover a vampire by unearthing and finding signs of seemingly fresh blood was a basic misunderstanding of how the body changes after death. Blood pooling in an organ certainly was not fresh, but it looked that way. And the conclusion was that blood had to come from somewhere. And if the white plague was striking down one person after another, leaving them looking, well, bloodless, we can understand that train of thought. The same method of identification seems to have traveled to Exeter, where it would be practiced with horrifying results. Historian Michael Bell wrote a book on the vampire panic. As he told the Berkshire Eagle, quote, the remedy was to go out into the cemetery, exhume the body of the people in your family who've died already of this mysterious disease, examine the corpses, see which one might have liquid blood in one of their organs. The liquid blood was interpreted as fresh blood. So the question would be, how did this fresh blood get into this supposedly dead body? It must be taking the blood from one of the living people in the family. So, as folk belief traveled, 
so did folk remedy. And what was the cure? As Michael Bell told the Berkshire Eagle, it was to unearth graves, find the vampire, locate their suspiciously bloody liver or heart, and, quote, to exercise that particular organ and burn it to ashes. But that wasn't all. And we turn to the newspapers of 1892 to learn just how this played out in New England. Looking for creepy stories? Then we might have a podcast for you. And now, presenting Rattled and Shook. Rattled and Shook is a weekly podcast that features new scary stories every episode. Kind of like this. I would hear her say things to me inside my head. I couldn't get around him. I was trapped. The other guy started to get pretty agitated. He grabbed my grandfather's oxygen hose and he cut off his oxygen. Then I started thinking, well, you know, who would be hanging around in this nowhere forest, in this nowhere area? And that's when I started looking more closely. And that's when I noticed there were several shapes. And they were slowly working their way toward me as they were moving from tree to tree. New episodes of Rattled and Shook are out every Thursday. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm sure you've heard the old adage that you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do, are you making time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal a reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. One listener says the show truly makes my day more enjoyable and entertaining. Fans of the show are so passionate, they even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who've listened to all 900-plus and counting episodes. I highly recommend you check out Everything Everywhere Daily's recent episodes on Why Are There No Flying Cars? and The Little Ice Age That Happened 700 Years Ago. Learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This brings us back to the Brown family and their plague of disease. It seems that they were so unlucky, so unfairly affected by tuberculosis, that some in their community thought that the supernatural simply had to be involved. And the supernatural required solutions that were beyond a doctor. What would that cure be? Well, you've already gotten a preview from Michael Bell. Suffice it to say, it didn't come with a prescription. According to the Meriden Daily Journal from a late March 1892 report, this plan was put into action. As the paper described, quote, a horrible superstition has been put to test in Exeter. Strangers, remember poor Edwin Brown, the one who'd been sent away for a rest cure? You'll recall his sister Mercy had taken ill and died while he was gone. And even though Edwin was gone for many months, safely in Colorado, and nowhere near Rhode Island, 
it doesn't seem to have quelled the panic that rose when he returned home. Some in town suspected that his life force was still being drained away, even over a long distance. We guess proximity wasn't considered a vampiric requirement. Per the Meriden Daily Journal, now critically ill, Edwin had arrived back in Exeter. And there he was, quote, examined by a number of people who expressed implicit faith that some unexplained and unreasonable way in some part of the deceased relative's body, live flesh and blood might be found, which is supposed to feed on the living who are in feeble health. This is the key element of the New England vampire fear, the idea that the deceased were preying on their own families. The fact that Edwin was practically a country away as he grew more ill didn't seem to be a consideration. In his town, some people were focused on finding a culprit. Because when there's a culprit, you have a solution. That's the thing about contagious fear. It doesn't stop for logic. According to another paper from the time, the Gazette and Advertiser, to save the remaining members of the family, including Father George Brown, who still remained healthy, and dying son Edwin, some in the town decided that a ritual was in order. It was one familiar to some of the residents, and so, after gaining the very half-hearted permission from George Brown, the townsfolk set about disinterring his relatives. And when they did, well, they declared that while Mrs. Brown and the eldest daughter of the family were merely bones, Mercy Brown's organs, her heart, and her liver contained blood. That, of course, was a sign of her vampiric activity. Something had to be done. So, as the paper reported, quote, her heart and liver were cremated. Neither of these articles mention what is perhaps the most infamous part of the legend. If you know the story of Mercy Brown, then you will definitely remember this bit, that after the cremation, Edwin was told that he must physically ingest his sister's organ ashes. And that, what's more, he actually drank a tonic made from them. Yes, very disgusting. And a pretty occult for such religious folks. But that's the story that we're told. It's a detail that has become the most thrilling and the most awful bit of the brown vampire story. It has been repeated over and over again in dozens of sources that poor Edwin drank a medicine born of desperation and superstition and cannibalism. And that experience, certainly, it would have been a horror. We cannot deny that. Except for one strange thing. Or rather, two strange things. We simply cannot prove, without a doubt, that Edwin Brown actually imbibed. And even further, based on what we found, it seems that some of the people involved in this morbid task didn't even believe that it would work. In fact, they did not believe in vampires at all. What's more, non-believers may have actually made up the majority. Now, stay with us for a moment. We know we told you there was a vampiric panic and certainly, people were panicked. But just how many people? Was it as sweeping as the modern stories suggest? And if not, who talked 
poor Edwin Brown into such a terrible meal. That's, uh, if he had a meal at all. So, on that topic, Edwin and his infamous drink. The story of Mercy herself is true enough, in that her body was disinterred. An autopsy was even performed and fully accounted for. That was published widely. And the ritual of burning organs to ash was witnessed by many, and it was reported on the same way each time. But when it came to the idea that Edwin actually consumed those ashes, things got a little dicier. Now, there was one paper that claimed so. The Evening Bulletin published the most dramatic version we found of this story in late March of 1892, and it directly stated in its report that Edwin, quote, ate and, quote, consumed his sister's ashes. But the other sources we found did not verify this version. The reports by the Meriden Daily Journal and the Gazette and Advertiser end with a description of cremation of organs in the cemetery and immediate reburial of the family members. An article in the Belleville Republic County Freeman alludes to, quote, a mysterious ritual known only to those in attendance, which sounds pretty dramatic, we must admit, but the other sources we found from the same era, including those that named or even quoted his relatives and the doctor who was present, made no mention of Edwin consuming the ashes. Now, don't get us wrong, though in this case we would welcome being wrong. This practice was not unheard of. This was a thing in New England at the time, though we saw various takes on it described in different papers, including one situation where a family simply, quote, inhaled the smoke of cremation. Inhaling, eating, drinking, burning, all of these techniques were chalked up to folk practice, unique to New England, though there's some evidence they actually carried over from Europe. How much eating was actually happening, though? That's simply not clear. Now, it's fair to say that Edwin might have drank a tonic, and it might not have been widely reported in the papers. After all, who would want to highlight that? Or perhaps there's another historical account that we simply cannot find in our archival access. But based on the research of historian Michael Bell, who studied the New England vampire panics, it seems that the connection between Edwin Brown and the drinking of ashes may have only truly been cemented much, much later. Michael Bell thinks that the legend may have grown more popular in the 1970s, when the Brown story became more of a focus in local media, and thus, he said, took on a decidedly more ghoulish tone. After all, a good panic needs as much panicking as possible. Basically, the ash drinking became canon because it was horrible. For what it's worth, the Providence Journal agreed with Michael Bell in 2008. Its reporter wrote that the story could not be definitely verified from any historical record. That said, so much of the rest of the terror suffered by the Brown family can be. The fear, the disinterment of their relatives, the examination for blood, and the ritual burning, which is all the more bizarre to us because it's made clear in the 1890s reporting that George Brown, father of the family, and many other people in town did not believe in vampires. This was not a society where disease and its causes were wholly unknown. 
In fact, scientific discoveries about the root cause of tuberculosis had been underway for quite some time, and they had already been published. By the end of the 19th century, immunology was already a practice. Scientists and doctors were working hard at developing cures for tuberculosis, though a successful treatment would not be developed for another 50 years. There was an understanding of mycobacterium tuberculosis. And by 1892, the scientific reports on germ theory were fairly well known among educated people. And there were educated people present in the vicinity of the Brown family. And germ theory was, pardon the pun, spreading across the globe for close to 50 years before Mercy Brown's death. And it would be proven, quote, conclusively, as the National Library of Medicine explains, by the time of her death. That said, it would be 1920, as the Harvard School of Medicine points out, before germ theory was actually universally accepted. Remember, information traveled slowly, and imagine how difficult that concept might have been to people who were being told that invisible flecks of sickness, of death, were sneaking into bodies and through eyes and noses and mouths and spreading across their breath and through their bodies. It seems that George Brown, the unlucky father of the family, was a man who had some understanding of science. He had long resisted any suggestion of the supernatural. He certainly wasn't leading a charge of dozens of townsfolk who were ripping people from their graves. According to the Boston Globe, Mr. Brown simply, quote, did not believe in vampires. So, why, as the paper wrote, did he at, quote, at last yield to the entreaties of his neighbors to have the bodies exhumed and the hearts and livers burned? Per the Boston Globe, George Brown's eventual agreement to the ritual seems to have been based more on desperation or exhaustion or both. He was seemingly harassed by more superstitious neighbors who said that Edwin would die, quote, so long as his dead relatives preyed on him. And news sources illustrate that these neighbors did not represent the whole town. They may have been a vocal minority who were getting louder as the Browns got sicker. But as far as we can see, George never believed. And he wasn't the only person who had reservations. The doctor who attended the disinterment, Dr. Harold Metcalf, certainly agreed with him. Per an 1896 article in the Boston Globe, Dr. Metcalf is described as a graduate of Brown University and Harvard Medical School and was also the area's medical examiner. He was, quote, not at all in favor of the vampire theory, and he told the young man who came to see him about it that it was all a mistake. He was only convinced to go because George Brown wanted a real medical man, not simply superstitious folk in attendance. The ritual still occurred, but Dr. Metcalf was on hand to say that, in his opinion, Mercy Brown's body was in an absolutely normal state and that the blood in her organs was not unusual. But the whole affair still continued, and Edwin, he died anyway. Certainly, there was an invisible evil stalking George Brown's family, the bacteria that caused tuberculosis so small that perhaps he could not imagine what scientists were seeing under their microscopes. 
something almost supernatural and impossible to fight. So was it so strange that a few of the good people of Exeter believed in vampires? Or maybe that they just wanted to believe. We believe that they were frightened. We think that, on the whole, it was some of the same things that we're still afraid of today. And perhaps we can relate to that. Hope and fear drive humanity to strange places, to dark places, where we act in spite of logic and not because of it, where we want to believe, but we don't. As the Boston Globe wrote in 1896, quote, A great number of the leading men of Exeter do not believe in vampires at all. And that's funny, because we had the distinct impression going into the story that everyone did. Many modern tellings of the Mercy Brown story invite us to imagine a sweeping panic, a hysteria gripping townsfolk in a true paranormal fear. It's certainly true that a few people thought vampirism might be the cause of all the suffering. But the rest? Desperation seems to be the better term. And when that hits, you'll listen to just about any suggestion. You're looking for a cure. Because a cure is a luxury. And so many things don't work. Until something finally does. And maybe, in the throes of that search everything begins to seem like a viable option. Or, from the outside looking in, like a panic. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers. From the lives of regular people, just like you and me. Except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers. One Strange Thing is an independently produced podcast. To support the show and to hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, you now have three options to enjoy two extra bonus episodes a month. On Apple Premium and Supercast, you can get the bonus episodes delivered to your app of choice for just $2.99. And for two more dollars a month on Patreon, you'll get many more fun extras. There you'll find ad-free early releases of our regular episodes, two full-length bonus episodes a month, two monthly giveaways, blog posts, and the occasional live stream, all for just $5. We hope you'll check out one of these options and support the show. There's a link in our show notes. And if you enjoy One Strange Thing, please take a moment to leave us a great rating or review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. <laughs>